G. William Domhoff is a sociologist who has spent his life studying the American ruling class. Since 1967, he has published this research in his book series, Who Rules America? This excerpt is from the seventh edition published in 2014. The institutions that weave the owners and high-level executives of corporations into a national upper class transcend the presence of absence of any given person or family. Families can rise and fall in the class structure, but the institutions of the upper class persist. Not everyone in this nationwide upper class knows everyone else, but everybody knows somebody who knows someone in other areas of the country. Thanks to a common school experience, a summer at the same resort, membership in the same social club, or membership on the same board of directors. The upper class at any given historical moment consists of a complex network of overlapping social circles linked by the members they have in common and by the numerous bonds of trust created by common cultural styles and values that emerge from a similar upbringing, education, and lifestyle. Viewed from the standpoint of social psychology, the upper class is made up of innumerable face-to-face small groups that are constantly changing in their composition as people move from one social setting to another. Involvement in these institutions usually instills a class awareness that includes feelings of superiority, pride, and entitlement, and a sense that they are fully deserving of their station in life. This class awareness is, in effect, a social psychology of justified privilege, which is reinforced by shared social identities and interpersonal ties. More important, the fact that the upper class is based in the ownership and control of profit-producing investments in stocks, bonds, and real estate shows that its members are collectively a corporate rich. They are not concerned simply with the interests of the corporations they own or any one business sector, but with such matters as the investment climate, the health of the stock and bond markets, the rate of profit, and the overall political climate. Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the show where we look into the abyss of American history and uh, see if it looks back at us. <laughs> We're doing this with the help of historian Greg Grandin's 2019 book, The End of the Myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And today we are doing the first installment of a two-parter where we discuss chapter 11 of The End of the Myth by looking at the first couple of decades of the Cold War at home and abroad. Despite having nominally ended 30 years ago, the Cold War still haunts the American psyche. As current events show, the Cold War created demons in U.S. politics and culture that have yet to be exercised, and continued to leave the world sitting on the brink of nuclear annihilation. But before we get into our own impending doom, uh, let's take it back to 1948. 
TV producer John Goodell created the Win a Future contest, in which one lucky contestant would win a house in a newly completed suburban development in the San Fernando Valley, just north of Los Angeles. The house would come equipped with all the latest appliances and furnishing, with the winner also receiving a new car and a job in the area. It was the American dream. Some 640,000 Americans entered the contest by submitting a statement of 100 words or less on the topic. Quote, Why is it better to live under capitalism than communism? The best entrants were invited to appear on the TV show, People Are Funny, where they would be challenged to solve a riddle and win their future. Something deeper was happening with this contest, however. As historian Elaine Tyler May recounts, quote, The contestants' letters were collected and sent to Italy, along with care packages of food. The United States Army translated the letters and distributed them with care packages to Italian voters in key areas at risk of electing communists. You see, it had become apparent that without U.S. intervention, the Italian Communist Party would likely win the first post-war elections in Italy. Then-Congressman Richard Nixon asked his aide, Richard Moore, to concoct a plan to help the anti-communist effort in Italy. Having worked in television prior to joining Nixon's staff, Moore contacted Goodell, and the contest was created. Ultimately, the ruse was not needed as the U.S. occupational forces simply ruled the Italian Communist Party an illegal political organization and banned it from participation in elections. For the winner of the contest, Vivian George, her future did not turn out to be so bright. The promised job never materialized, and as the first residents in Panorama City, they were too isolated to receive medical care for her husband. They moved out of their dream house after only a few months. The Win a Future contest showed how the Cold War blended domestic and international politics, and was fought on the level of culture, the family, and consumption. It represented more than simply a fight against communism, but an organized effort in the part of the American capitalist class to reshape American politics and the economic order. The reality is that, at best, the capitalist class saw the New Deal as a temporary expedient to mitigate working-class rebellion, a carrot to dangle until things calmed down. The more reactionary members saw it as a violation of the sacred rights of private property in favor of demonic social rights. In 1938, the board of directors of our old progressive-era friend, the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM, laid out the problem. Quote, The hazard-facing industrialists is the newly realized political power of the masses. And unless the masses' thinking was redirected by business, the business was headed for adversity. The primary method for avoiding the disastrous consequences of drifting towards social democracy was the use of mass propaganda. The goal of this propaganda was to take rational ideas and replace them with irrational symbols in the minds of the working class. Capitalism was to be replaced with freedom, democracy, the family, the church, and patriotism. Any government regulation of business or any attempt to create social welfare programs at the expense of business was labeled communist, socialist, and subversive. In 1933, Harold Laswell, one of the architects of this propaganda campaign, cynically wrote of the necessity of propaganda. Since the, quote, masses are still captive to ignorance and superstition, unquote, 
the increase in the political power of labor has, quote, compelled the development of a whole new technique of control, largely through propaganda. For propaganda is, quote, the one means of mass mobilization which is cheaper than violence, bribery, or other possible control techniques. Propaganda was essential in a democracy because, quote, men are often poor judges of their own interests. Another key figure in the propaganda campaign, Edward Bernays, would later dub this practice, quote, the engineering of consent, describing it as the, quote, very essence of the democratic process. The capitalist class vigorously pursued this goal of re-educating the working class. The president of NAM said in 1935, you will note especially that this is not a hit or miss program. It is skillfully coordinated so as to blanket every media, and then it pounds its message home with relentless determination. This strategy of blending massive public relations efforts with anti-labor activity became known as the Mohawk Valley Formula. Social psychologist Alex Carey described its goal. They sought through propaganda and other means to arouse and organize the public at large to do to labor on industry's behalf what the individual employer himself could no longer do legally. This tactic, it was reported at the time, envisages a public opinion aroused to the point where it will tolerate the often outrageous use of force by police or vigilantes to break up a strike. A 1936 report from the NAM gave a brief accounting of these efforts. Their industrial press service provided articles to 5,300 weekly newspapers and cartoons to 2,000 weekly papers. Uncle Abner says their most popular cartoon appeared in 309 papers. You and Your Nation's Affairs, a column created by the NAM, ran in 260 papers. Factual Bulletin, a monthly exposition of the industry's viewpoint, was sent to every newspaper editor in the country. A translation service for foreign-born citizens that appeared in papers reached 2.5 million people. And six full-page ads about the American system appeared in 500 different newspapers. Radio spots, movie spots, public meetings, employee leaflets were all distributed to more than 11 million workers, posters, films, 60,000 outdoor billboards, and 1 million pamphlets distributed to libraries, colleges, businessmen, lawyers, and educators were all created by the organization. World War II allowed the capitalist class to pry the state away from new dealers. The war would require the full mobilization of the United States. Business leaders made it clear that their cooperation would only be bought with increased profits. Business grew fat because of the war. Corporate profits soared to 250% of their pre-war levels. This profit was taken off the backs of the working class as a wage freeze held workers' pay in check while prices increased 45%. Factories were built by the state and then handed over at less than 60% of the cost while massive war contracts with minimal oversight were embezzled and funneled into private coffers. While workers observed a ban on strikes during the war, working conditions deteriorated quickly. From 1941 to 1945, 88,100 workers were killed on the job and over 11 million were injured, making the American factory one of the deadliest theaters in the war. The New York Times highlighted the post-war problem for business in 1946. 
After fighting a war against fascism abroad, the Times reports, returning workers wanted to change the structure of industry to provide greater economic democracy to match our political democracy. The Times singles out the heavily skewed distribution of wealth as a primary concern for workers, their main concern being, quote, that the owners of industry, the stockholders, realize too great a return on their contribution to industry. Business journalist for factory management and maintenance, Whitting Williams, warned that what once seemed, quote, an inconvenient but more or less harmless series of industrial disputes has now become so widespread and so threatening as to look like nothing less than a catastrophic civil war. The capitalist class, under the leadership of the NAM, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Advertising Council, began a $100 million per year propaganda campaign to, in the words of editor of Fortune magazine, Daniel Bell, quote, rewind the loyalty of the worker, which now goes to the union, and to halt creeping socialism. Eh, or in other words, of the member of the Ad Council to, quote, educate the American people about the economic facts of life. <laughs> Grim. <laughs> yeah, dark. <laughs> This campaign was supported and carried out by the biggest names in American industry, Boeing, General Motors, Ford, IBM, General Mills, etc. It also indirectly led to the creation of the truly psychotic organization, the John Birch Society. Candy magnate Robert Welsh was an important member of the National Association of Manufacturers and served on the board of the Foundation for Economic Education, a propaganda arm of the NAM. After retiring from business in 1957, he formed the John Birch Society with 11 other millionaires, three of which were former NAM presidents. Welch warned business leaders, quote, We are living in America today in such a fool's paradise as the people of China lived in nearly 20 years ago, as the people of Czechoslovakia lived in a dozen years ago, as the people in North Vietnam lived in five years ago. And, as a people of Iraq, lived in only yesterday. Within two years, the John Birch Society had a membership of 20,000. Many employers made membership a condition of employment for management. And was raising more than a million dollars a year. But that was still in the future. In 1946, the first target of this new business offensive was the Office of Price Administration, or OPA. The OPA instituted price controls to try and tamp down runaway price inflation during the war. Business propaganda erroneously claimed that price controls themselves were the cause of shortages and inflation. The NAM spent $3 million fighting the OPA, mailing out anti-OPA publications to 127,000 teachers, clergymen, and women's clubs. They gave over 1,000 talks before civic clubs, church groups, and student groups and spent $1.5 million in newspaper advertising, decrying the OPA's effects on the economy and to Americans' freedom. The end result was that the OPA went from an approval rating of 85% to 26% over the course of the year. Seems like uh, propaganda works. <laughs> yeah, huh. Congress quickly moved to dissolve the OPA, and prices skyrocketed. The price of food rising 28%. This canceled out wage gains made in post-war strikes. Workers saw real weekly wages decline from $32.50 to 
For business, it was a bonanza as net profits soared to the highest yearly total in history up to that point. The ultimate goal of this corporate propaganda campaign was to roll back the rights of organized labor that had been gained during the Great Depression. C.E. Wilson, the head of General Electric, summed up the concerns of business in 1946. Quote, The problems of the United States can be captiously summed up in two words, Russia abroad, labor at home. The passage of the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, a bill that had been crafted by the NAM, was a first major step towards revising labor rights downwards. Labor historians Richard Boyer and Herbert Moraes described the effect of the Taft-Hartley Act. Quote, The Taft-Hartley reinstituted injunctions gave courts the power to fine for alleged violations. It established a 60-day cooling-off period in which strikes could not be declared. It outlawed mass picketing. It provided for the suing of labor for, quote, unfair labor practices. It denied trade unions the right to contribute to political campaigns. It abolished the closed shop, went far towards building the conditions for a return of the old open shop days that preceded the CIO. It authorized employer interference in attempts of his employees to join a trade union. It prohibited secondary boycotts. It authorized and encouraged the passage of state anti-union right-to-work laws. Business Week triumphantly announced that it was a, quote, new deal for America's employers. <laughs> Bleak. <laughs> yeah, the last part was really the kicker. <laughs> the result of Taft-Hartley was a five straight years of unprecedented profits on the part of business and a continuing stagnation of wages on the part of workers. Union density in the United States entered a state of permanent decline after the bill's passage. This legislative attack against the working class was paired with a political attack that would launch the Second Red Scare. A massive propaganda campaign sought to label any demand made by workers as communist. In 1938, Congressman Morris Dees of Texas formed, with Roosevelt's blessing, what became the first incarnation of the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. While the committee had been formed ostensibly to root out Nazi plots in the United States, in reality, it was a witch hunt designed to find communists and New Deal programs. The Dees Committee called forth hundreds of witnesses to, quote, name names. After the U.S. entry into the war in 1941, the Dees Committee was put on hold. The war found the U.S. and the Soviet Union on the same side, and domestic propaganda focused on the dangers of fascism, while soldiers talked of Uncle Joe in Russia. That's still Joe Biden. He's no, <laughs> <laughs> an old man. <laughs> He's fucking old. That's the joke. <laughs> it would be a three-year period not seen before or since where positive depictions of the Soviet Union were allowed in the American media. Then the war came to an end. In 1946, the Chamber of Commerce published and distributed more than a million copies of the pamphlet, quote, the communist infiltration in the United States. In 1947, it published an equal number of the follow-up pamphlet, quote, communists within the government. <laughs> the target of the pamphlet was anybody that did not tow a strict pro-business line. Republican Senator John Butler of Maryland clarified who exactly was to be suspected as a, quote, communist infiltrator, mainly being anyone with a 
pro-union anti-management bias. The government was quick to join the business crusade, and in 1947, Truman forced 2.5 million government workers to sign loyalty oaths, declaring themselves not to be secret communists in order to keep their jobs. The restraints imposed by the Taft-Hartley Act forced 232,000 union organizers to sign similar anti-communist oaths. By 1950, 8 million workers had been forced to sign loyalty oaths to keep their jobs. The signing of these oaths was no small thing. Anybody accused of being a communist after signing could find themselves blacklisted from their profession and imprisoned under perjury charges. In most cases, only a single accusation was required to bring charges against someone. If a union refused to sign loyalty oaths, they would then be raided by anti-communist unions. After a successful strike in 1946, General Electric set itself to breaking up the United Electrical Workers, or UE, a radical labor union of 600,000 members. They hired Lemuel Ricketts Bulware, a man... <laughs> that fucking... That laugh. I mean, the name. Come on. They hired Lemuel Ricketts Bulware, a man that had worked with GE CEO C.E. Wilson on Roosevelt's war production board, to break up the union. Bulware encouraged the anti-communist International Union of Electrical Workers, or IUE, to raid the UE when the union refused to sign loyalty oaths. With the help of GE and the newly merged AFL-CIO, the IUE was able to muscle out the more radical UE at GM. Bulware then went about breaking up the IUE, having managers take union-busting seminars put on by the NAM and by moving troublesome factories to the south to break up the union. This red-baiting attack led to a spirit of cannibalism in the labor movement. In 1949, the CIO expelled its 10 most active unions on the charge that they had been infiltrated by communists. The 10 expelled unions were the 10 unions named in the 1946 chamber pamphlet. Ultimately, 1 million union members were expelled, and this right-wing coup and the heart of the union was ripped out. Within three years, membership in the CIO had declined by 33%. By 1955, the CIO was absorbed by the conservative AFL. Union membership as a percentage of the total workforce would peak in 1954 at 28%, and begin to steadily decline from there. This decline has been the direct result of the conservative leadership of the unions, namely the AFL-CIO. Union growth strategies have largely centered on poaching members from other unions rather than building an actual labor movement. The self-immolation of the labor movement did more than rob workers of representation at work. Communist-led and influenced unions also sought to instill the union and labor organizing as a way of life. They didn't just bargain for higher wages. They opened community centers, created political libraries, did political and economic education. In short, they created a conscious working class culture that believed in the dignity of work and lionized workers while villainizing capitalists. The destruction of this cultural infrastructure was both conscious and continues to reverberate to this day. The ever-increasing anti-communist hysteria that was being cultivated by the American capitalist class and the American state 
created a deep sense of paranoia that stifled movements for economic or social justice. The Jim Crow South had long claimed that racial unrest was a Soviet plot. This excuse now became general conservative orthodoxy across the country. Robert Welch of the John Birch Society summed up the conservative sentiment towards civil rights that has been upheld by every succeeding generation. Quote, the trouble in our southern states has been fomented almost entirely by the communists for this purpose, to stir up bitterness between whites and blacks in the south so that small flames of civil disorder would inevitably result. They could then fan and coalesce these little flames into one great conflagration of civil war. The whole slogan of civil rights as used to make trouble in the South today is an exact parallel to the slogan of agrarian reform, which they used in China. <laughs> I mean, it's, in some ways that he's not intending, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the equating of civil rights and communism did more than stifle progress against racism. It also stunted the civil rights movement itself. During the 1930s, the African-American press, influenced heavily by its Communist Party USA members, reported heavily on the international struggle against colonialism, connecting it with the struggle against Jim Crow racism in America. It was an accepted premise among many black leaders that these struggles were intertwined, making them one great international struggle for freedom. Historian Ellen Schrecker writes, quote, the African-American press covered freedom struggles and strikes in Africa, and even featured regular columns by Chinese and Indian journalists. Mainstream black leaders like the NAACP's Walter White denounced imperialism in the same quasi-Marxist language as Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois. Even as late as June 1946, the Communist Party USA-linked Council of African Affairs could draw 19,000 people to rally in New York City. By 1947, the anti-communist hysteria had led to a major reversal. Beginning with Walter White renouncing his previous anti-imperialist positions, followed by W.B. Du Bois being expelled from the NAACP in 1948, and Paul Robeson being marginalized and blacklisted. The Council on African Affairs would fold in 1955, with members so scared that they could only give money to the organization in secret. Ellen Schrecker describes the aftermath. The destruction of the anti-imperialist left changed the way Americans viewed the struggles for independence in Africa and elsewhere. By the late 1940s, the NAACP and the mainstream civil rights groups had made the same kind of implicit deal with the White House that the labor movement had. In return for the Truman administration's support for their domestic agenda, they would back its foreign policy. The NAACP thus had to mute its opposition to imperialism. The rest of the black community simply let Africa drop off the map. The Chicago Defender, which had run editorials about Africa and colonialism in every single issue until 1946, published four in the first five months of 1950. Moreover, the quality of the little information that did reach African Americans declined precipitously. Gone were the informed analyses of Africa's social and economic conditions that had been common during the early 40s. Instead, black readers, like white readers, got a condescending portrayal of African society as underdeveloped, exotic, and primitive. White ministers, not black intellectuals, dominated the liberal successor organization to the Council on African Affairs. 
while the CIA covertly encouraged interest in Africa's culture instead of its politics. As a result, when American blacks finally did reconnect with Africa in the 1960s, they tended to do so in cultural or nationalist terms rather than political or economic ones. That legacy of ignorance persists. Americans, both black and white, know less about Africa today than they did in the 1940s. On a more local level, the anti-communist hysteria severed the connection between the civil rights movement and labor. Under the strain of Taft-Hartley, black unions in the South were the first to be abandoned by the CIO. Both the CIO and later the AFL-CIO allowed white unions to raid black unions across the South, crippling black labor. Once again, companies could easily play white labor against black for the benefit of corporate profits. For example, an organizing drive among black workers in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, allowed the local NAACP chapter to grow from 11 members in 1942 to nearly 2,000 members in 1946, just four years later. After the CIO expelled the Food, Tobacco, and Agricultural Workers Union Local 22, in 1950, at the behest of R.J. Reynolds, the membership plummeted to below 500. Not only did the membership fall, but its class character changed as well, from being primarily working class to being representative largely of black professionals and their interests. This was repeated across the South and many places in the North. Again, from Ellen Schrecker. Anti-communism proved invaluable to white supremacists during the 1940s and 1950s. It provided them with a more up-to-date and respectable cover than mere racism and hooked them into a national network of right-wing activists. It reinforced their traditional contention that outside agitators were behind the move for civil rights. The attempt to abolish segregation in the South, the Alabama Citizens Council explained, is fostered and directed by the Communist Party. That allegation increased with the South's traditional penalties for whites who opposed Jim Crow. Not only would these people face the social isolation and economic sanctions that radical dissidents ordinarily incurred, they would also have to contend with McCarthyism. The most visible manifestation of the anti-communist hysteria was the rejuvenation of the HUAC investigations under Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy. An alcoholic with little political clout, McCarthy saw taking up the anti-communist cause for business as an easy way to build a political career and smite his rivals. McCarthy attacked New Dealers and the government, eventually running out General George Marshall, who was Truman's Secretary of Defense, and Maryland Senator Millard Tidings, who was a political enemy of McCarthy. Of course, McCarthy was not the only opportunist to get in on the action. As a senator, Lyndon Johnson used accusations of communist sympathies to block the reappointment of Leland Olds to the Federal Power Commission. Oldsen was a support for the Natural Gas Act of 1938, which was opposed by Texas oil interests, which had funded Johnson's Senate campaign. But the primary target of McCarthy's HUAC hearings was the entertainment industry. Capitalists knew the power of the entertainment industry to shape public opinion, and Hollywood would play a large role in their propaganda campaign. HUAC called sympathetic witnesses like Ronald Reagan, a B-list actor at the time working for General Electric, Walt Disney, and Elliot Kazan, to name names and create a scene of a Hollywood 
quote, riddled with communists. Reagan in particular built a career off turning in co-workers and rivals, all was stoking the anti-communist fire at GE. He served as a spokesman for GE's union-busting efforts, extolling the value of the free market and decrying the dangers of communism at mandatory company meetings. A blacklist quickly developed from the hearings, beginning with the naming of the, quote, Hollywood Ten. A group of ten screenwriters determined by the witch hunt to be secret communist agents. The ten writers, Dalton Trumbo being the most famous, began serving one-year prison sentences for perjury during the Hewitt hearings in 1950. A couple of them would continue writing screenplays under aliases and for reduced rates, naturally, while others were drummed out of the business entirely. After the Hollywood 10, the blacklist grew quickly. Director Orson Welles and the actor Charlie Chaplin fled to Europe, where they would work for the next decade rather than appear before HUAC. A pamphlet written by the business organization America Business Consultants Incorporated, with the collaboration of the FBI, named 151 people within film and television who were communist sympathizers, all of whom were quickly added to the blacklist. Actor, singer, activist, and athlete Paul Robeson and writer Langston Hughes found themselves on the blacklist for speaking out against racism. After his release from prison, Hollywood 10 writer Herbert Bieberman directed the amazing pro-union film Salt of the Earth about a mine strike in New Mexico that tackled issues like racism and sexism in an uncompromising manner not seen before and rarely seen since. The film became the first American movie to be banned as theaters refused to show it and studios refused to back it. All of the people involved in the film would be blacklisted. A special mention is one of Hollywood's most infamous HUAC finks, Elia Kazan. After naming rivals to the HUAC committee, thus adding them to the blacklist, Kazan soothed his guilty conscience by making the film On the Waterfront. The film was a blatant piece of anti-union, anti-communist propaganda that sought to justify Kazan's behavior before HUAC. The industry loved the film, awarding it eight Oscars. It is still the recipient of much praise and on many best-of lists. Arthur Miller was a screenwriter who was blacklisted by Kazan's testimony, but only after Kazan stole his screenplay for On the Waterfront, with Kazan adding the anti-communist angle. Miller went on to write the stage play The Crucible as a searing indictment of those that named names for HUAC. McCarthy famously carried a briefcase, which he claimed to be full of evidence exposing the communist infiltration of government, Hollywood, and the labor movement. We now know that McCarthy had no evidence against those he accused in most cases, but an accusation was good enough during this period to result in being blacklisted or being called in front of Congress and hit with a perjury charge. The list of 125 communists and fellow travelers that George Orwell turned into the CIA helps to give us an idea of how arbitrary the so-called evidence against those called before the HUAC could be. Orwell named civil rights crusaders Paul Robeson and George Padmore, citing them as being very anti-white. <laughs> Padmore gets singled out as being a, quote, Negro, perhaps of African origin. 
<laughs> I like the question mark. <laughs> yeah. Mm? I'm just asking questions. <laughs> yeah, Orwell, just asking questions. Always. Yeah. <laughs> Orwell's contemporary literary rival, John Steinbeck, is listed as a, a spurious writer, pseudo naif. <laughs> and. <laughs> Caddy asshole. Dude. Yeah, I know, man. <laughs> and Upton Sinclair as very silly. <laughs> this is really kind of Trumpian, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, <laughs> like, George Orwell. George Orwell sucks. People, I hate to tell you this. <laughs> a fucking awful human being. Just a he piece sucks of ass. shit. What a he snitch. sucks ass. His books are for babies. So yeah, yeah. Orwell sucks. Oh God, he sucks so much. Steven Spender and Tom Dryberg were both listed as being suspicious because they were suspected homosexuals, while Dryberg was singled out for special suspicion because he was an, quote, English Jew. All of these people would find their careers damaged by the anti-communist crusade. And it's worth noting, Paul Robeson's name comes up a lot because, man, they fucking hated Paul Robeson. <laughs> Who, yeah. if you're young and don't know who Paul Robeson is, the man did everything, and he's cool as hell. Um, so just Google Paul Robeson, listen to his songs, watch his movies. Uh, the guy rocks. Also an amazing football player, too, on top of it. Oh, but, dope. You do it all. Yeah. He literally did it all. Like, absolute renaissance man. Cool as hell. So for everyday people, the blacklist could be even more devastating. People were barred from fields and trades that they had spent their entire lives working in. When they tried to find other employment, they would be harassed out of that work, too. Former employers would call a blacklisted worker's new employer to let them know why they had been fired, resulting in the new employer following suit. The FBI made it a habit to show up at the jobs of blacklisted workers to have friendly chats with their new boss or to send a few agents to talk with a worker's landlord about whether they wanted this kind of trouble inside their building. In the face of this onslaught, many workers were forced into desperate poverty, and some were even driven to suicide. Either way, they served as an example to their co-workers about the price of resisting the political economic order. A general culture of anti-communism was painstakingly cultivated by economic and political elites as part of their general propaganda campaign. Hollywood was quick to release a long series of anti-communist melodramas, including The Red Menace in 1949, I Married a Communist in 1950, I Was a Communist for the FBI, 1951, <laughs> and My Son John in 1952, to name a few. In these films, communists were portrayed as murderers, political assassins, terrorists, saboteurs, bank robbers, racists, and perhaps worst of all, intellectuals. <laughs> the fact that not a single CPUSA member has ever been found guilty of any of these crimes, except for being an intellectual, never seemed to bother Hollywood. In the movies, communists were behind every labor management conflict in America, instigating otherwise contended but easily misled workers into such apparently un-American activities as going on strike. The communist goal, according to the 1953 TV show, I Led Three Lives, was to control everything and everybody by any means. <laughs> well, a minor goal. Yeah. <laughs> Aim low, guys. Yeah. <laughs> In the TV show... 
Biff Baker USA, the capitalist class, gave viewers an idealized image of themselves as corporate executive Biff Baker went around the world closing business deals while also engaging in anti-communist espionage and sabotage. Poor America. (laughs) These films and TV shows were almost always financial flops. But despite this apparent lack of public interest, Hollywood kept churning them out. As historian Nora Sayre writes... The purpose of these films was politics, not entertainment. Quote, For certain filmmakers, being asked to work on an anti-communist picture was like a loyalty test. If someone who was thought to be a communist refused to participate in the project, it was assumed that he must be a party member. So, for some writers, directors, and actors, taking part in a film such as I Married a Communist was rather like receiving a clearance. The number of movies concerning other social issues decreased drastically between 1947 and 1954, although more than 50 anti-communist films were produced. Along with anti-communist flicks, the other great Hollywood contribution to the culture during the Second Red Scare was the cowboys and Indian genre. These films and television shows were an outlet for the promotion of imperial attitudes regarding race, war, and the international scene. The genre depicted a deep paranoia about a world full of enemies banging at the gates of civilization that must be vanquished by a hero unhampered by such thoughts as diplomacy or compassion. Historian Tom Englehart, in his analysis of the cowboy movie, uh, noted a particular trend. All the films portrayed the non-white world through the eyes of the besieged white colonizer. He explains this through an analysis of an archetypal scene in the cowboy genre. A circle of covered wagons or sometimes a fort or camp wherein humanity rests warm and secure. Suddenly, on the periphery, emerge the screeching savages to kill the humans for no reason other than to quench their own bloodthirsty propensities. The white men ready their rifles, knowing what to do. Exterminate the attackers. This scenario, according to Englehart, forces us to flip history on its head. It makes the intruder flip places with the intruded upon. Although in real life, it was the Indians who faced ruthless invaders, ready to exterminate them with uncompromising violence. In Hollywood, it was the Indians who must invade, intrude, break upon the circle, a circle which contains all those with whom the film has already certified as human. Or as John Wayne summed up in the film, The Searchers, there's humans and then there's Comanches. The effect of this paranoid vision of the world was to justify U.S. imperial policy abroad. Thus, it made sense in this particular bubble to accuse Vietnam of aggression against the United States or to declare Cuba the most dangerous country in the Western Hemisphere. The perception of being constantly besieged by enemies created and fostered by culture makers became a critical cover for U.S. imperialism. A joint effort between the CIA, FBI, and the British Information Research Department, IRD, was launched to shape a new anti-communist culture. The IRD's Ernest Bevan explained the purpose of this campaign. Quote, We cannot hope successfully to repel communism only by disparaging it on material grounds. We must put forward a rival ideology to communism. James Burnham, steering committee member for the CIA front group, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. You know, it, 
for all the CIA front groups, it's like so obvious it's a CIA front. <laughs> like, what? The, like, can you, I thought these like are like, this, like the top intelligence in the world. Like, this it's is so like obvious. The, uh, the Simpsons joke of the FBI van that says "Flowers by Irene," but it's yeah. like FBI, <laughs> you know, vertically. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> CIA front group, the Congress of for the Congress for Cultural Freedom, was even more explicit about the purpose of the propaganda campaign to quote challenge egalitarian political theory and show the persistence and inevitability of elite rule. The campaign began with the purging of various government libraries, the libraries of the State Department and the U.S. Information Agency or USIA, were purged of the works of writers like Howard Fast, Langston Hughes and Herman Melville, as well as thinkers like Jean-Paul Sartre, W.B. Oh. Du Bois. Oh, Moon, yeah. Let's hear that again. Jean-Paul Sartre, right? Mm. Magnifique. Mm. I would have murdered, murdered the French pronunciation on that. My mom's going to love that one. Hell yeah. She, she, she knows French. <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois and Helen Keller. In a move eerily reminiscent of the Nazi purges, Albert Einstein's theory of the relativity again disappeared from the bookshelves. The number of titles shipped abroad yearly by the USIA had dropped from over 119,000 to merely 314 by 1953. Ultimately, 30,000 titles suspected of pro-communist leanings were removed from the State Department libraries. This was no small thing for a library system visited by 36 million people annually. One of the more vexing targets for the CIA was the art world. For the previous two decades, the most popular art style in the world had been socialist realism. The CIA moved quickly to replace the subversive art form with its positive depictions of the working class and overt politics. Abstract expressionism, or as the CIA liked to call it, free enterprise art, became the darling of cold warriors. As historian Francis Stoner Sanders writes, quote, For the CIA, it spoke to a specifically anti-communist ideology, the ideology of freedom, of free enterprise, non-figurative and politically silent, it was the very antithesis to socialist realism. The issue of political silence was critical. Contemporary art critic Harold Rosenberg hailed the arrival of abstract expressionism, praising its, quote, political choice of giving up politics, while the artist Paul Berlin applauded the fact that it was, quote, aloof from the political left. But politics was not to be purged from art entirely. In the words of art critic Clement Greenberg, during the rise of socialist realism, the avant-garde had been, quote, abandoned by those to whom it actually belongs, our ruling class. But abstract expressionism would restore this class rule in the art community. CIA funds were quickly allocated to artists like the washed-up Jackson Pollock, whose career was reinvented by the Cold War. It's definitely not my personal opinion about Jackson Pollock. By the way, the CIA, <laughs> like, essentially funneling money to this guy probably killed him because it allowed his alcoholism to really spiral. You can, um, if you go to the MoMA, you can actually see, like, the big Jackson Pollocks. Um, you can, like, see, like, cigarette butts, like, inside of them because he was just, <laughs> I mean, this dude was, like, just on a bender the entire time he was doing Pretty much. These. Yeah. Speaking of... The Museum of Modern Art was designated as the showcase for the new art form and was given lavish grants to put on shows highlighting the likes of Pollock. 
When Cold Warrior and Time Life owner Henry Luce viciously attacked the new art, a 1949 letter from the CIA explained to Luce the Cold War value of abstract expressionism, and he changed the editorial policy of his magazine, giving abstract expressionism lavish photo spreads. Still, the working class remained unmoved by the art. Modern writer Timothy Brennan, in his critique of postmodernism, a philosophical cousin to abstract expressionism, notes of working class opinion, quote, According to accepted wisdom, the United States could not be freer of a socialist realist sensibility. But anyone who has traveled the country would immediately recognize the aesthetic as a common form of public working class art under American capitalism. Could it be that it actually is a working class aesthetic, just as the advocates of socialist realism had claimed all along? Vulgar and homiletic realism, what highly rewarded immigrants from the Soviet bloc, had made careers out of sneering as Stalinist kitsch, is vulgar to those from a fleshier, more delicate training. But rather than a ludicrous ideology forced onto a docile, retarded public, socialist realism turns out to be a rupture in taste between those whose hands are calloused and those who take their literary agents out to lunch at expensive restaurants. CIA agent Tom Braden explained the failure of abstract expressionism to gain traction amongst the working class slightly differently. Quote, I've forgotten which pope it was who commissioned the Sistine Chapel. But I suppose that if it had been submitted to a vote of the Italian people, there would have been many, many negative responses. It takes a pope or somebody with a lot of money to recognize art and support it. You have to always battle your own ignoramuses, or to put it more politely, people who just don't understand. The CIA also took a special interest in infiltrating the world of academia. Hundreds of academics were pressed into the cause all around the country. Academic and literary journals were put out by CIA fronts in order to highlight the work of anti-communist academics. Of the dozens of journals created by the CIA, only the New Statesman and the Partisan Review ever received any amount of popularity. For those that couldn't sell copies, the CIA dutifully bought up entire print runs to distribute at conferences and mail out to universities. Those who were willing to play their part in the Cold War were wined and dined. Hannah Arendt writes of visiting a CIA villa in northern Italy, quote, You feel as though you are suddenly lodged in a kind of Versailles. The place has 53 servants. The staff is presided over by a kind of head waiter who dates back to the time of the Principessa and has the face and manner of a great gentleman of 15th century Florence. For those that didn't fall in line... There was always the stick. In 1947, the FBI launched a campaign against American Youth for Democracy, a college-based student group connected to the Communist Party, USA. At Queens College in New York, the group was banned from campus by faculty vote after a local politician rallied against the AYD for being, quote, un-American. At Temple and the University of Colorado, Faculty committees were formed to investigate the subversive nature of the student group, ultimately banning them from campus. In Michigan, the Callahan Committee, one of the state-level versions of the HUAC that popped up across the country, ruled that AYD chapters were to be banned at all state schools. When the president of Wayne State University initially resisted a ban, he was told by the Callahan committee that they would lock all building allocations to the college until he banned the youth group. 
after a consultation with the FBI, who informed him that, quote, AYD chapters are communist youth recruiting centers, the president acquiesced and banned the group. Colleges across the country instituted reporting requirements for clubs suspected of subversive behavior. Student orgs were required to provide full membership lists to the college administration, which were then provided to the FBI. The University of Michigan's Dean of Woman... Dean of Woman? Is that like... Uh, Munya, back in the old days, uh, if you, college began, obviously gender segregated, but when state schools began inviting women to stay, they had their own separate dorms and everything, and they had their own separate dean who was there to look after not only their academic, uh, you know, progress, but their moral progress oh as well. <laughs> you often, you often had you correctly a woman right yeah and whether you stayed in the dorms or maybe a sorority or whatever you would often have a, a minder so an older woman who like lived there it would make sure that you were home at you know whatever the curfew was 8 p.m whatever and definitely make sure no boys were present and that dean abby shapiro <laughs> the university of michigan's dean of women justified the list by describing students as quote a pathetic group of social and emotional misfits cursed with just enough brains to complicate any problem but not enough to go to the heart of it a wave of bans on public speakers soon followed in a typical incident in 1951, Ohio State University banned a planned speaking event from economist Harold Rugg. The American Legion had been protesting against Rugg's economic textbooks for years for the promotion of Keynesianism, which they labeled communism. The college canceled Rugg's speaking engagement and created a rule that all future speakers had to be personally approved by the college president. The search for political purity at the college level reached its height with the denial or revocation of tenure and, in some cases, firing of faculty. In 1949, the University of Washington held a hearing in which they would ultimately fire three tenured faculty members for suspected subversive activities. The hearing was provoked by the state's Fact-Finding Committee on Un-American Activities. While the University of Washington made a public spectacle out of their political purges, colleges across the country began to rid themselves of politically suspect faculty. Those that lost their jobs found it impossible to find work at other colleges, with many leaving academia for good. The CIA's culture war was funded through a network of foundations, both dummy and real. While the Fairfield Foundation was the most notorious CIA front, legitimate foundations such as the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Carnegie Endowment also helped funnel money for the organization. A 1976 Senate investigation of the CIA revealed that CIA penetration into foundations was so deep that between 1963 and 1966, of the 700 grants of over $10,000 given out by 164 foundations, at least 108 involved partial or complete CIA funding. In the field of international activities, CIA funding accounted for half of all grants put forward by these same 164 foundations. To give an idea of how total this cultural program was during the second Red Scare, not even the Girl Scouts were safe from the prying eyes of the Cold Warriors. In 1954, the Girl Scouts were forced to alter their handbook after the American Legion claimed their, quote, 
one world merit badge had communist sympathies. In a bit of American solipsism, the badge was changed from one world to, quote, my world. <laughs> Cue the music, the <laughs> scary, ominous music. <laughs> <laughs> uh. this, it reminds me of, um, you know, what was that movie after the Iraq war where, like, um, there was like a girl, like the movie poster was like a girl next to like the two like British guys like holding up a oh, peace that's, sign. That's an Amanda Bynes film. That's, that's uh, Amanda Bynes. What a girl yeah, wants. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. This is this what a girl wants energy right there. One of the funniest like things of co- like Hollywood self uh, censorship ever fucking made. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. The anti-communist hysteria hid even deeper and darker secrets. Turning a recent ally in the Soviet Union into an official enemy called for the rehabilitation of former enemies. In the interest of the new Cold War, the U.S. brought the Nuremberg trials to an end and in 1950 created a clemency board to begin pardoning all Nazis convicted of war crimes. Thousands of Nazis and their allies from all over Europe were brought into the United States on forged passports with new identities, courtesy of the CIA and the State Department. Some, like Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist and SS officer who oversaw weapons factories staffed solely with concentration camp labor during the war, were too famous to simply hide. In 1955, Walt Disney was enlisted to help whitewash von Braun's image with a series of television specials where the old Nazi opined about space travel. In 1960, von Braun was made a director at NASA and showered with accolades. The slightly lesser-known Dr. Hubertus Struggled became the leading researcher in space medicine for the Air Force. Struggle got his initial experience in the field by placing concentration camp prisoners in a barometric chamber and changing the air pressure until they died. The good doctor was also known for throwing prisoners into icy water and timing how long it took for them to succumb to hypothermia, as well as engaging in a horrific series of chemical weapons experiments. It is important to note here that the U.S. did not want Strughold in spite of his horrific crimes, but because of them. Medical awards were named after this murderer. A medical library in San Antonio was named after him. And Ohio State University had a stained glass mural of great heroes in the history of medicine, where Strughold sat amongst Hippocrates and Marie Curie. In a deeply cynical world, perhaps an argument could be made that the contributions made by these men to science in some way justified looking past their horrifying crimes. And for the record, we absolutely do not believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck these people. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the problem is that men like von Braun and Struggled were the exception. Among the thousands of Nazis brought into the United States— you were infinitely more likely to find concentration camp guards like Jacob Reimer, who went on to run a restaurant in New York, or a Nazi cop like Alexander Lalikas, who got to retire in Massachusetts, or a state collaborator like Croatia's Andrija Artokovic, uh, who spent his post-war years in California. Such intense collaboration with the former Nazi regime would require a propaganda campaign to justify it. In 1947, the army put former Nazi general Franz Halder in charge of the U.S. Operational History, German section. His job was to go through the Nazi prisoner confessions to discern who was telling the truth. 
In this job, Halder was able to whitewash the history of Nazi violence, blaming the defeat of the Nazis on the Eastern Front on Hitler's incompetence and exonerating the German army for any crimes against civilian populations. This rewrite did not fit with Halder's own diary, in which he wrote about personally ordering civilian executions. When this was brought to light, the U.S. government protected him from the German courts, which wanted to try him for war crimes. Halder and other German generals then received lucrative deals to write personal memoirs and battle histories for popular consumption by a growing fan base of World War II enthusiasts. Perhaps the most popular Nazi-turned-memorist, Erich von Manstein, expounded on the links between Bolshevism and Judaism in his personal papers. While in his memoirs, he wove tales of heroism against all odds on an eastern front. As a result, among World War II enthusiasts, a cult of the, quote, lost cause began to develop that resembled in both form and purpose the lost cause cult that had been developed around the Civil War at the beginning of the 20th century. German collaborators were also given a chance to rewrite their history. In 1953, members of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists published Black Deeds of the Kremlin. The two-volume work was entered into evidence during a presentation to the U.S. House Committee on Communist Aggression, headed by Cold Warrior Charles Kirsten. Black Deeds flipped history on its head, arguing that the Holocaust as carried out in Ukraine was actually carried out by the Soviet Union rather than Ukrainian nationalists and the Nazis. It was a convenient position for Black Deeds authors to take. Petro Pavlovich, who testified about Soviet mass executions in Venezia during the 1930s, was also known as a Poland Trublovetsky, a Nazi collaborator and editor of Nazi propaganda in German-occupied Ukraine. His account in Black Deeds is almost the same as that given in his Nazi propaganda, minus tidbits such as, quote, Ukrainians must be steeled in the great and cruel struggle against Jew communism. Fedir Fedorenko, another contributor to Black Deeds, would later be convicted of being a Treblinka death camp guard. Anatole Bilitsurkiski, a.k.a. Anton Spak, was a former Ukrainian Nazi police officer who ordered executions of civilians. Alexander Hay Holoko was a member of the SS and Minister of Propaganda of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Luckily, we don't have to hear from any of these guys anymore, right? Yeah. Phew. (laughs) Yeah. Who knew? (laughs) One of the purposes of rehabilitating European fascism was to steal Americans for the showdown against the Soviet Union. America's Nazis described Russians as brutal and beast-like and claimed that the Russian soldier, quote, possesses neither the judgment nor the ability to think independently. These racist stereotypes were then repeated by Western thinkers in academia and the State Department. For example, in his brief biography of Stalin, in his brief biography of Stalin, George Kennan waxes on about the quote, certain well-known characteristics of the Caucasian mountain race to which Stalin's father is said to have belonged, an inordinate touchiness, an endless vindictiveness, an inability to ever forget an insult or a slight. But great patience and power of dissimulation in selecting and preparing the moment to settle the score. He is said to have observed that there was nothing sweeter in life than to buy the proper moment for revenge, 
to insert the knife, to turn it around, and to go home for a good night's sleep. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, architect of American post-war foreign policy. <laughs> With the blatant anti-Semitism of previous generations now considered unpalatable to the public, American capitalists had switched to an Orientalist framework for describing the Soviet Union. This was codified in academia in 1957 with Kurt Wittfogel's book, Oriental Despotism. Wittfogel argued that the need for large-scale water projects in ancient Eurasia had permanently reshaped the Asian mind to accept despotism over democracy and seek mindless obedience to an iron-fisted ruler. Political scientists then made entire careers out of explaining Soviet actions as being the incomprehensible product of the Asiatic mind. Yeah, thanks, Richard Pipes. Awesome. Um, yeah, very Jesus cool stuff. Christ. L luckily, that, that racial framework of uh, Russia as an Asiatic beast is uh -huh. also not something that we're still dealing yeah. with today. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. So, ultimately, the culture of anti-communism was buttressed by state policing and violence. A rapid succession of laws demonstrated the coercive force that underwrote the soft power of the propaganda campaign. Over 140 members of the CPUSA would be tried under the revived Smith Act of 1940, which made advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government illegal. When the case of several CP members was appealed to the Supreme Court on the grounds that they had never openly advocated overthrow, the Supreme Court ruled 6-2 to two that adherence to the principles of Marxism by itself was sedition. Did that ever, did that ever get, like, repealed? Is that still a thing? As far as I am aware, that is, <laughs> there's been nothing to ever, like, push back on that. Cool. Okay. That's really cool when you hear about the next thing. Huh. The 1950 McCarran Internal Security Act allowed for the detention of suspected communists and fellow travelers during declared national emergencies. J. Edgar Hoover, testifying before Congress on behalf of the bill, discussed the possibility of throwing half a million people into prisoner camps. The bill was so outrageous that even Truman was forced to speak out against it, calling it a long step toward totalitarianism. Congress overrode Truman's veto and ultimately passed the bill. <laughs> This, by the way, I mean, we should mention is directly modeled after what the U.S. did in the Philippines. Um, yeah, the Philippines keeps coming up over and over yeah. again, and it's it's important. Um, Very important. The 1954 Communist Control Act built on the McCarran Act in the 1951 Supreme Court decision and outlawed membership or support of the CPUSA altogether. McCarthyism made anyone who did not toe the line of business a suspected communist. An excerpt from a 1950s grade school textbook, Exploring American History, reveals the degree to which the state tried to foster a snitch society. Quote, The FBI urges Americans to report directly to its offices any suspicions they may have about communist activity on the part of their fellow Americans. The FBI is expertly trained to sift out the truth of such reports under the laws of our free nation. When Americans handle their suspicions in this way, rather than by gossip and publicity, they are acting in line with American traditions. Mm. <laughs> cool. 
<laughs> I like giving it to like grade school kids too, because it's like, yeah, you know, when when it, when you see just like regular people in the world, you know, those regular people you see, your parents. Tell us about your parents. Tell us what your parents yeah. have to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> incredible. He does intelligence. Launched in 1956, the FBI's COINTELPRO, which is an abbreviation of Counterintelligence Program, was the most sophisticated of state attacks on working-class organizations. COINTELPRO combined surveillance of suspected leftists with a program of sabotage and assassination. The FBI program of sabotage included sending undercover agents into groups like the Communist Party USA, SDS, SNCC, Black Student Unions, and AIM in order to factionalize and encourage red baiting. In one of COINTELPRO's biggest successes, FBI sabotage helped to foment a war between the Black Panthers and other Black nationalist groups in Southern California in 1968. The program went much further than sabotage, however. The FBI helped to falsify evidence that was used to incarcerate leftist leaders. Famously, Black Panther leader Jeromino Pratt spent 27 years in jail, including eight years in solitary confinement, on a trumped-up murder charge supported by fabricated evidence provided by the FBI. The FBI also aided in the assassination of various leaders, including Chicago Black Panther Fred Hampton, who was murdered in his sleep by Chicago police officers. Pratt, an L.A. Black Panther, had been targeted for a similar assassination but was able to avoid the assassination attempt after being tipped off. The COINTELPRO operations cast a wide net. A few examples illustrate the diversity of tactics and attacks. Prior to Ernest Hemingway's suicide in 1961, he complained to friends that the FBI was following him and tapping his phone. His friends thought that Hemingway was simply suffering from paranoia, but when his FBI file was released in the 1980s, it revealed that Hemingway was right. The FBI had been keenly interested in him since he tried to start an anti-fascist spy ring during the Second World War. Stanford English professor H. Bruce Franklin also found himself the target of COINTELPRO, as the FBI planted newspaper stories, mainly in the cooperative San Francisco Chronicle, designed to discredit him. The FBI campaign led to Franklin, a tenured professor, being fired by Stanford in 1972. Beginning in 1957, the FBI monitored Martin Luther King. The FBI tapped King's phone, read his mail, and attempted to blackmail him with charges of infidelity, and even tried to convince him to commit suicide. And later murdered him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> put, put that in, you know, there's a little, little mm -hmm. asterisk right there. The FBI pursued a wide variety of tactics to try and break up the American Communist Party. The IRS was encouraged to repeatedly audit suspected CP members, Anonymous letters and phone calls were made to CP leaders spreading disinformation in hopes of causing rifts and splits. The FBI aided the Trotskyist Socialist Workers' Party in its effort to poach CP members. And perhaps in the most bizarre COINTELPRO operation against the CPUSA, the FBI tried to instigate a war between the Communist Party and the Italian Mafia in New York. Between 1956 and 1971, the FBI engaged in at least 2,218 COINTELPRO actions that we know of, as well as placed at least 2,305 warrantless phone taps, at least 697 bugs, and with the help of the CIA, intercepted at least 57,846 pieces of mail. 
despite the massive propaganda campaign and both overt and covert police repression, working class movements continued to grow during the 1950s. By the 1960s, the potent mix of poverty, racism, and the escalating war in Vietnam would lead to an explosion of social discontent not seen since the railroad strikes that rocked the country in 1876. All right, well, this episode's running a little bit long, so I think we're going to save the discussion for another episode. Obviously, there's a lot in there to discuss, and we haven't even talked about how the suburbs were created yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, look forward to a little discussion episode coming up here soon. But before that, we want to leave you with some thoughts from historian Elizabeth Fonis Wolf's book, Selling Free Enterprise, about businesses' post-war propaganda campaign. In 1945, business faced an aggressive labor movement that sought to reassert New Deal liberalism. Unions called for full employment, social planning, and the expansion of the welfare state, essentially a reorientation of American society orchestrated through the continued growth of labor and state power. The business community had a different agenda. It sought not only to recast the political economy of post-war America, but also to reshape the ideas images, and attitudes through which Americans understood their world. Employers hoped to restore the public's allegiance to an individualistic ethos that had been shaken by the travails of the Depression. They asserted that economic decisions should be made in corporate boardrooms, not in legislative committee chambers. Prosperity, they argued, would be achieved best through reliance on individual initiative, and the natural harmony of workers and managers that business saw as inherent in the free enterprise system. The business community had two primary goals. First, it hoped to destroy or discredit the ideological underpinnings of New Deal liberalism. Second, it wanted to undermine the legitimacy and power of organized labor. Industrialists would accomplish these goals through campaigns to sell Americans on the virtues of individualism as opposed to collectivism, freedom as opposed to state control, and on the centrality of the free enterprise system to the American way of life. The labor movement could never match the resources available to the leaders of American business. As a result, the political and cultural landscape of the post-war era was increasingly dominated by the images and ideas produced by a mobilized business leadership. This indeed marked, quote, the businessman's intellectual reconquest of America. How far this reconquest went, how deeply rooted it was, remains unclear. We know what business leaders wanted workers and other Americans to believe. Moreover, We know that the images and ideas of business were pervasive, filling such of America's cultural space with a series of selectively distorted symbols that made it difficult, if not impossible, for Americans to discover and articulate competing visions of the American polity. To this degree, at least, the businessmen's intellectual reconquest of America succeeded.
del otro lado de la frontera dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de Space.